Okay, gang, make yourself comfortable. I want to introduce you to someone you may or may not know. Wayne, would you give me a hand up here, please? This is Wayne Thaler. Now, if you've participated in one of our golf tournaments or sponsored anything to do with one of our golf tournaments, you probably know Wayne very well because he's very instrumental in just that. Let me make sure that there we go. Uh, Wayne, uh, why don't you tell us about your wife? You've got two kids, right? You're married to who, Mary? Yeah, my wife is Mary. A lot of you probably know her. She, she couldn't be here today. Uh, my daughter, Jessica, over there, she's uh, 14 in Metter High School. And, and my son, Justin, he's, uh, he came home from the National Guard being deployed at the border in Texas for a year. And he's trying to get uh, back on with the Border Patrol right now. So well, he's really excited about that. Yeah, that would take him to Texas. Tell me this. How long has your family attended Grace Community Church? Well, we've been here for 13 years. You are self-employed? You're a business owner? Uh, no, uh, I, I was a stockbroker for, for my whole life, uh, but I just recently gave that up and, and uh, took a job that had been offered to me several years ago, okay. uh, put a lot of thought into it. I was really afraid to do that, but I uh, finally made the jump and did that. Tell me about your upbringing. Uh, what did your religious understanding, what, what did that look like when you were younger, uh, even before coming to, to Grace Community Church? Where, where your, was your Family religious? Were your parents religious? What'd that look uh, like? Yeah, my parents weren't religious. Um, grandparents were, but um, uh, we didn't go to church growing up. My father was a skeptic, uh, and that that kind of kind of uh, taught me to be a skeptic. Yeah, uh, he was very suspicious, uh, not really of of God, but uh, of the church, mm-hmm. and uh, he didn't. Uh, he, he, he thought I was a sucker for, for uh, giving money to the church on a regular basis. <laughs> you recently spent a lot of time with your father. Uh, yeah, he's, he, he's uh, been diagnosed with terminal cancer, so I spent a couple months with him this winter. and uh, He had a house in uh, South Carolina and Wyoming, but he decided he wanted to be in Wyoming, so I drove him, drove him back to Wyoming in, in November, and we had a lot of time to talk about all that. And uh, I had told him about my, my tithing. And my intention was, was uh, to have him. I told him it's not too late for him to uh, have a relationship with God. And, uh, but when he, when he told me how, you know, he saw, I told him how much I have money I give to the church on a regular basis. It's just something that's important to me. He just thought that uh, he taught me better than that. Hmm. Interesting. Um, so when you came to Grace, you were not a follower of Christ. Yeah, when I first came to Grace, I was definitely a skeptic. Uh, didn't know what to think. In fact, I didn't uh, uh, hadn't really grown up in the church at all, and as I had that, those same suspicions. Um, and and the first service was just about that. It was uh, Mike had his sermon about uh, he had the, the kitchen table set up over here with the four chairs. Some of you guys might, might remember, but uh, one of those chairs was a skeptic, and it felt like that that sermon was meant just for me. When did you decide to intentionally? Follow after Jesus Christ. Yeah, that came years later. Um, I think in 2015, right around there, uh, my job was very, very stressful, and I started losing a lot of sleep. Couldn't sleep at all at night. And um, I just got, uh, it came to me, I started praying every night, and uh, praying intentionally. There's a difference between what I used to do and pray when you want something or when something's not going right, you might pray here and there, but it became intentional. And uh, 
I, I started praying about my job and, uh, and what to do. And somehow, uh, my problems about sleep did go away. It's, uh, it's, it's quite something. My understanding, if I'm doing the math right, is that you and your family sat in this church for almost 10 years before it became clear to you, and you overcame that skepticism and decided to follow Christ intentionally. Is that, am I correct? Yeah, it took a long time. You know, I would sit here and uh, I would really buy into what you're saying, mm-hmm. but there would always be doubts, you know, like, you know, am I sure? And, uh, and slowly that, that all went away, and now it's hard. When I look at somebody, whether it's a brother-in-law or my father, and I just can't see how, how they can't see it. What was different, Wayne, uh, between like what mattered to you before that, that maybe doesn't matter to you now after deciding to follow Christ? Well, there's a lot of things that, that used to be important to me that just aren't now, but uh, being intentional about my faith, um, taking that time, planning it out ahead and, and praying at night before you go to bed, um, and, and my faith walk, it's, uh, it's always on my mind. Uh, let's flip it. Were there things that were not important then, but that now they truly are? It's yeah. very different. Yeah, uh, my family, uh, but also my relationship uh, with Jesus. And that's something, you know, uh, when I first moved to Metter, uh, I took the advantage of, of Sunday mornings going to play golf at Willow Lake because nobody was out there. I had the whole course to myself. <laughs> you know, I could use each hole as a, a driving range because there wasn't a single soul out there. And somebody actually asked Greg who that guy was golfing during church. <laughs> so they came and invited me to come to church at Grace. And uh, my friend Pee Wee and my neighbor. And, uh, uh, but uh, I was really appreciative for that. It was God bringing me to church to introduce me. Um, One last question. There are other Waynes sitting in this room right now, I'm certain. There are men who are exactly where you were 10 years ago. What advice would you have for them? Well, you know, starting as a skeptic, I understand a lot of people are, and it it took me a long time. Um, But uh, it is important, and uh, things will certainly turn around and all come together uh, once you sacrifice yourself. Good. I appreciate your time. Would you thank Wayne for helping me, please? Thank you, Wayne. Take that back to him. Wayne, you've been here since about 9 o'clock this morning. You can go ahead and leave. Nobody will be upset if you walk out, okay? Uh, If you brought your Bible, I want you to open it to Luke chapter 14. But before we get into this, uh, I want you to examine your program with me. I've changed the program this Sunday. This is how we're going to do it for a while. And we're doing this in light of our Plus One initiative, which is Family Night. Remember what Plus One is. Plus One is this church's initiative to get you to grow in your faith walk, to add something, add one thing to your worship experience on Sunday. Plus One, add to your faith, grow in your faith walk. Family Night is one of those things. Now, remember what Family Night is. Family Night enables you as a parent to introduce a God dialogue into your home. A lot of people are surprised to find out that if I introduce your child to faith in in Jesus Christ, to faith in the Word of God, your child has about a 50-50 chance of holding on to that throughout his adult lifetime. But listen very closely, parents. If you as mom and dad introduce your child to Jesus Christ, to faith in the Word of God, that child has a 97% chance of embracing that message and holding on to it throughout his or her lifetime. That's how important and critical you are as mom and dad 
in your home. So we want to help you do that. Now, I know some of you kind of feel as though, hey, that's the church's job. I bring my kid to church so you guys can talk about that sort of thing because maybe you think that there's something difficult about it. There's nothing difficult about it, especially with this. If you notice in the program, the first half of the program has to do with a message I'm about to share with you. So you can sit here on Sunday and get the highlights from the first part of the program. But halfway down, it says family night, big idea. This is what you'll use for your family night. Imagine picking a special night, pick a special meal, could be pizza night or taco night, something the kids like. Uh, there's a family in our church that when they do family, well, when they did family night, when their children were much, much smaller, they set up a little tent in the living room and they had family night. It was a super cool idea. Imagine establishing, first of all, a family night and then sitting down with your five-year-old, your 10-year-old, your 15-year-old and engaging in a God dialogue that's meaningful to both you and them. We're going to help you do that, parents. You can use what we provide on Sundays to set up your own 15-minute family night. You'll find out it goes on a lot longer than that because kids are hungry and interested about the things that we talk about on Sundays. Okay, so that, that's how that works. Now, let's get into Luke chapter 14. Uh, I don't know if you know this or not, but about a week ago it occurred to me that we are just a few days away, six months or so, from the 20th anniversary of 9-11. When that occurred to me, I realized two things. Number one... I'm getting old. I'm getting older. Um, and number two, 9-11 is the big event for my lifetime, for my generation. I'll never forget that day. Uh, my father's generation, they can talk about the assassination of President Kennedy. Uh, I wasn't alive yet. They can talk about landing on the moon. Uh, uh, my grandfather's generation, they can talk about the crash of the stock market, the Great Depression, uh, Pearl Harbor on December 7th, 1941. Uh, but for my generation, it's 9-11. I will never, ever forget where I was that day when I heard the news. You probably can remember where you were. I was standing on the seventh tee box at the golf course in Metter. I was playing golf with two men from our church, and my phone rang. It was a black Motorola StarTac. Remember that? Remember how excited you were when you got a StarTac? Remember? That's what I had. I took the call from my father. He said, Michael, his voice was shaking. He said, are you near a television set? I said, no, I'm playing golf with the guys. I named their names. He said, they've gone and done it, Michael. They've done it. He said, get to a television set. America has been attacked. And we dropped what we were doing, and we rode those carts up to the clubhouse, and we stood in front of that big screen, and we were in awe. Even today as I say it, I can remember the chills going down my arms and the hair standing up on the back of my neck. I can remember that static picture, that video coming from across the river looking at Manhattan, and the Twin Towers were burning. They were on fire. I can remember the quiver in every reporter's voice as they tried to comprehend what they were seeing and describe it for the for the public. I can remember the days following as they began digging through that rubble, the stories of heroism. I can remember that unanticipated cross that showed up in the rubble. Remember that? That was pretty cool. Somebody hung a flag on it and took a picture. I can remember American horror being quickly replaced with American pride and American resolve. I can remember how unified our nation was in the months following the September 11th attacks. I can remember the size of the church crowds nationwide as they exploded in the weeks and months following 
September 11. I will never forget that day because that day is the event of my lifetime. Now, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you ought also have certain markers along the timeline of your life that are meaningful to you in a spiritual sense. We call them spiritual markers. They're like signs that we place on the timeline of our lives that says, God was here. I can vividly remember my junior year in high school. I was away at summer camp in Tennessee, and for the first time, I decided that Jesus was going to be boss in my life. I believed he was who he claimed to be, and I was going to follow him. I can vividly remember that. That's a spiritual marker in my life. I can remember deciding that I think God wants me to work for a church somehow. So I went away to college to receive my training. I can remember my parents dropping me off in Chattanooga, Tennessee on a deserted campus because the athletes arrived first and there was no one else on the campus. And at the moment they drove away in the family van and headed back to Florida, homesickness gripped me like you wouldn't believe. I can vividly remember those feelings of, but I'm here to train to serve Christ. I can vividly remember getting married to the love of my life and finally landing a job, a position in a church in Florida, but then having her say, this is not what I want. And so I wound up divorced. I I wound up uh, questioning everything I believed about God and his word. I wound up, and and can remember this so vividly, I I remember sitting in my empty apartment all by myself and questioning and wondering whether or not it was all really true, and I remember saying to myself, either way, God, you're still God, and I'm not, so I'm willing to follow. That's a spiritual marker in my life. I can remember the day I decided to start Grace Community Church. I was sitting in my office at another church, and I thought to myself, having thought and prayed over this for weeks now, the only way to build the kind of church that I think is effective in our community is to start it myself. I remember making that decision and coming home to tell my wife, Amy. Those are spiritual markers, and anybody who's serious or intentional in their faith walk has at least one of them that they can call upon. Now, one of the reasons we don't, and one of the reasons we don't have more, and one of the reasons so many of us remain skeptical of certain things, as Wayne was describing, is because of religious people, religious institutions, and their tendency to overcomplicate the faith walk. You see... When you're all alone and you decide, I'm going to follow Jesus Christ because God is God and I'm not, and I want to make him Lord or boss in my life, that's a very simple thing that anyone can understand. But then enter the religious friend who tells you you have to go to a certain kind of church or who tells you you have to read a certain translation of the scripture. Religious people are famous for overcomplicating very meaningful profoundly meaningful principles in the Bible because of the human element in the faith walk. It's been that way all along. You realize 2,000 years ago when Jesus walked and talked amongst the people, there were 600 plus rules that people had to live by. Can you imagine 600 commandments to live by? Can you imagine carrying around a list in your wallet 
of the 600 things you better not do or you better make sure you do, can you imagine? And I mean, some of them were absolutely ridiculous. You know, one of the original Ten Commandments is, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. That means you can't conduct business when you're at church. But the Pharisees came up with another rule to compensate and overcome the original rule. They said, here's the rule. If you show up at church one day, and there's the guy that owes you $300, and he's standing there ready to pay you, you can't reach out your hand and take it this way. He's got to reach out his hand and present it. You don't take it underhand, you take it overhand. And that's the way they got around the rule. Is that ridiculous or what? In the days of Jesus, you couldn't walk more than 2,000 cubits from the city limits. That's about six-tenths of a mile. Because to walk any more than six-tenths of a mile on the Sabbath was to work. And you can't work on the Sabbath. One of my favorites is you weren't allowed to climb trees on the Sabbath. Did you know that? Couldn't climb a tree. Do you know why? Because if you fell out of that tree on your way down, you might break a branch and you would violate the no-cutting rule. You couldn't cut firewood on the Sabbath, so don't climb a tree. You might fall out and violate the no-cutting rule. Now, as ridiculous as all that sounds to us, and we roll our eyes and we think, oh, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard, we do the same thing today. Well-meaning followers of Jesus Christ complicate the basics of discipleship every bit as much today as we did back then. There are churches in our community that believe the only way to authentically follow Jesus Christ is to throw away modern translations of the Scripture and try and hold on to the 1611 King James Version. And they'll call anything else heresy, apostasy. Uh, I grew up in a church, believe it or not, where I heard sermons against going to the movies. Some of you are old enough to remember things like this. There are churches even to this day that Promote dress codes. You can't dress like that and call yourself a follower of Jesus Christ. In addition to your faith decision for Christ, we've got about 17 items we'd like to add to your faith walk. Interestingly enough, in our modern age, small groups have become one of those additions. Now, when we talk about adding to your faith at grace, we're talking about growing in your faith. But in other places, they're talking about authenticity when it comes to your faith. You can't call yourself a follower of Jesus Christ and not belong to a small group. Right? We do the same thing today that they did so many years ago. Others even go further than that. They say, if you're truly going to follow Jesus Christ, you've got to isolate yourself from society. You've got to build a family compound You've got to live in communion with one another and faithfully wait and watch for the return of Jesus Christ. Dress codes, rules about adult beverages, small groups, even music styles. That's laughable, or at least it should be. But why do we do it? Because the simple, straightforward message of Jesus is often more than we're willing to accept. Such is the case in Luke 14. You see, the Bible has a way of hitting a square between the eyes. In fact, it says of itself in Hebrews chapter 4, the Word of God is alive and active. That's why the Word of God can speak to us in 2021, just like it spoke to my father's generation in 1951 and his father's generation in 1931. It's alive, it's active. 
The author goes on. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges. That's why we don't like it. It judges our own sense of self-sovereignty. It confronts my sense of self-sovereignty. It judges what? Thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Here, follow me on this. It will always be easier to judge you by those 17 things that we wish to add to your faith decision than it would ever be to judge you by your thoughts and your actions. But that's what the Bible does. That's how it strikes us right between the eyes. That's how it confronts us with what is true, with with what offends my own sense of I'm the boss of me, I'm self-sovereign, I'm in charge, I decide what I'm going to do. That's why some reject it. Look, the fact is the reason the Bible is so direct is because God wants you to know. He wants you to know. When some read the direct statements of Jesus, like the one we're going to read in Luke chapter 14, they say, well, that's unfair. Nobody can do that. That's asking too much. No, no, no. God wants you to know. That's what makes it fair. It would be unfair if God didn't tell you what he expects. You follow me? What if you had one class remaining before you could graduate and receive your degree? And you walked in on the first day of class. Most of the time when you walk into the first day of class, there's a a syllabus on your desk. And in that syllabus, the professor tells you this is the required reading for the class. These are the dates of the midterm and the major examinations, the final examination. Uh, This kind of a research paper is due. It's going to take this much effort to pass this class. This part of the grade comes from that part of the curriculum. And this part of the grade comes from the other. When you walk into a college classroom, you pick up a syllabus and you know exactly what's expected of you to pass that class. Imagine walking in and there was no syllabus. Excuse me, excuse me. How do I pass this class? Well, I don't know. Well, what do I do? Do what you want. Well, what do I read? I don't care. What do you like? Well, are there going to be any tests? I don't know, maybe. Would you consider that a fair professor or an unfair professor? A professor who does not explain to you what is expected and then judges you anyway is grossly unfair. God is a God who is just and fair and merciful, so he doesn't do that. He lays it out there in a very straightforward sort of way. Why? Because God wants you to know. So here's where we begin. The lifestyle of a Christ follower involves this idea right here, discipleship. Do you know that in Jesus' day, they didn't call Christ followers Christians, they called them disciples. In fact, disciples were first called Christians in Acts chapter 11, in the city of Antioch. And in that setting, and in that instance, it was actually a derogatory term. The word Christian means little Christ. In Antioch, when the disciples came by, they'd point and snicker, all the skeptics. Look at the little Christs. There they go. Look at them. They were called Christians, little Christs, first in Antioch, Acts chapter 11 teaches. But those who were serious in their faith were called disciples. Discipleship. Discipleship means I adhere to the teaching of another. That's why we say at this church, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. I don't call you Christians. I call you Christ followers. That's why we don't say get saved We say, embrace authentic faith in Jesus Christ and follow after him. You see, I can easily say, I believe that this stool will support my weight. 
I can easily say, I believe this stool will support the largest man in this auditorium. I believe it will support his weight. But unless it is my intention to sit down, unless I'm motivated to act on that belief and take a seat, you can't call it faith. You understand? I can say all day long, I believe this stool will hold my weight. The book of James says the demons believe in Jesus, but what good does it do them? If I believe the stool will hold my weight and it becomes my intention to take a seat, now it's faith. That's why we call it a faith walk. Do you know in your New Testament, there is one Greek word that is interpreted two different ways. Sometimes the Greek word is interpreted believe or belief, and other times that same Greek word is interpreted faith. Do you know why the difference? Because sometimes we're talking about the beginning, believing that Jesus was indeed the Son of God, but that's just the beginning. Other times we're talking about the intention, the motivation. Yes, I will take a seat. That's the difference between, oh, sure, I believe, and I have faith in Jesus Christ. That's the difference between Christians believe, disciples walk in faith. That's the difference. Now, before Jesus got started in his ministry, he was 29 years old. 29 years as a carpenter. He followed his father's footsteps. He and Joseph, they repaired furniture, they built furniture, they solved problems with wood. But it's very likely that Joseph died when Jesus was just a teenager. So Jesus had to be a carpenter for many years to support his mother and his siblings because he was the oldest in the family. But when he was 30, the Bible teaches that he began his ministry. Each gospel starts with him either choosing his disciples or being baptized. That, embarked on a, that, em, that engaged him on a three-year mission. We call it this. The first year was the year of obscurity. Nobody knew who he was. He only had a small number of followers. Word hadn't gotten out. But when word had gotten out, he had healed many people, fed 5,000 people. He engaged the year of popularity. His name was well known. People came from miles around if they heard the healer was coming to town. And then finally, the year of opposition. The year when the Pharisees set out to destroy him. That's his third and final year. Luke chapter 14 takes place in his second year, his year of popularity, people were coming by the thousands. Watch. Let's read this together. Verse 25 of Luke 14. Luke writes, large crowds were traveling with Jesus. I just explained why. The miracle worker has come to town. No one had ever heard anybody speak of the Old Testament scriptures the way Jesus did. With such knowledge, with such depth and clarity... He was so practical as he, as he told stories that related to God. We call them parables. The Pharisees didn't teach like that. Everybody wanted to hear what this prophet, what this preacher thought about God. So large crowds were traveling with Jesus. Turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children... Brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. Wow. And the air went out of the room. What a buzzkill. Like, you've got this enormous following, and that's your message. Can you imagine some of these modern sort of uh, hyper-cutting-edge ministers opening the doors to their church, and there's 5,000 people there? 
He's wearing his skinny jeans and his $100 haircut, right? The place is packed, and the first words out of his mouth are, if you don't hate your father and mother, your wife, your children, even your own life, you can't follow Christ. I can't see it happening. That wouldn't be the message. Why? Because it wouldn't be nearly as popular as we think the message ought to be. But this is what Jesus is saying. Keep reading. It goes on. Whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Now, verses 28 to 32, he gives us two examples of counting the cost. In other words, he's got this enormous crowd following him because he's feeding them. He's healing their children. For goodness sakes, he raised a man from the dead. Thousands of people follow. He turns, he says, listen, listen very carefully. You can't be my disciple unless you're serious. Unless you hate your father and mother, your wife and your children, even your own life. you got to be willing to carry your own cross. I want you to consider the costs. Here are the costs. Verse 28. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost, see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. Here's another example, verse 31. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able, he'll send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and he'll ask for terms of peace. Watch verse 33. In the same way, in the same cost-counting way, in the same way, those of you who do not give up everything that you have cannot be my disciples. In that passage, Jesus gave us three things to consider. If you're not willing to hate those most dear to you, if you're not willing to carry your cross, and if you're not willing to give up everything you have, there's no way you can be my disciple. You can call yourself a Christian. You can go to church every Sunday, but you cannot call yourself a follower of mine. Now, those three considerations sound impossible to me. In fact, I have a very wide streak of skepticism in me. If I were sitting in your seat, I'd be thinking, you haven't given up everything. I don't know what carrying your cross is, but I don't see you carrying a cross. Obviously, you don't hate your wife, Amy. You talk about her all the time. So this can't be real. And we roll our eyes, and we just check that or kind of put that in the column of there's more religious, ridiculous statements made by the Bible. No, no, no. It's very clear and it's very simple. It may take a lifetime to accomplish, but I want to show you exactly what Jesus said. But the question remains as we begin, do you want to follow Jesus or are you just along for the ride? That's where you got to start at the beginning. That's where you got to begin. Do you want to follow Jesus or are you just along for the ride? That's what he asked the crowd. Do you really want to follow me or are you just here for the free meal? Are you just hoping I'm going to heal your arthritis? Are you simply hoping that you're going to see a good show? What sounds impossible, hate my, fa my family, carry my cross, surrender everything I have, it's actually very simple to understand. It's a simple principle, but it's profound in application. You see, Jesus is speaking to our intention and our motivation, just like the stool. Jesus is speaking not to our simple belief. Anybody can say, I believe in God, I believe in Jesus. But it takes faith to impact our intention, to impact our motivation. And look, this is not that difficult to understand. There's not a parent in here right now 
who doesn't use the same line of reasoning with your children? Think about this. You love pizza, right? You also love your children, right? Compared to my love for my children, I hate pizza because they're not even in the same category, right? There's not a father in this room who wouldn't say, yes, I would give up everything for my family. I'm not saying it'd be easy. I certainly don't want to do it tomorrow. But if I had to give up everything for my family, I'd be willing to do that, right? The exact same line of reasoning is used by Jesus to describe our relationship with God. But you got to remember two things. Number one, Jesus wouldn't have given us qualifications to inherit eternal life that only a few people could achieve. That would be grossly unfair, right? Jesus didn't say this just for the monks, right, who live in monasteries. And number two, you also need to remember the audience to which Jesus said it, it would have been much more difficult for them to do than it should be for us. Let's look at them one at a time very quickly. From verse 26, here's what Jesus said. Draw the vertical line first. Draw the vertical line first. The hatred of verse 26 is actually a lesser love. That's what we're dealing with. We're dealing with, in reference to my love for my family, I hate pizza. I despise ice cream. What Jesus is saying is, my love for God needs to be established first. Everything in my life should revolve around him, not me. Jesus is calling his disciples to develop a devotion to God first, before their attachment to everything else, because their attachment to everything else pales in comparison. Let me illustrate. Uh, I need a husband and a wife. John Cook, thank you for volunteering. John, bring Jill. Jill, come up here. All right, let's pretend that you guys are married and aren't just living together, okay? Just a little joke there. I want you to stand facing each other. How long have you guys been married? Nine years. She says eight, he says nine. Y'all can settle that after church. Um, now watch. Here, here's, here's, all God is, here's all Jesus is saying. You draw the vertical line first. That means when we get married, we just spent four weeks covering this. When we get married, my family revolves around Jesus. Okay, I'm going to play the role of Jesus because who else is going to do it? John? Hmm. Right? Now, because I've drawn the vertical line first as husband and wife, God is in the center of my home, and my home, can y'all revolve around me? There, there you go. See, that's the way it's supposed to work, all right? But now what happens, stop, what happens when baby number one comes and helps me? Tyler, you be baby number one, all right? Generally, when baby number one arrives, Jesus gets kicked out, right? And now the family revolves around baby number one. Is this not the case, right? Did you not experience this? All right, now stop. If this family goes to church and they know what's really supposed to be, they may include Jesus in the circle so we can then all revolve around the baby. But generally, that's about as good as it gets. Here's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, draw the vertical line first. Take the baby, make the baby part of the circle, keep God in the center, and now the whole family revolves around Jesus. Do you understand? 
That's how you draw the vertical line first. Thank you for your help. Appreciate that. Appreciate that. Thank you, dear. Thank you. That's how you draw the vertical line first. That's all he's saying. You see, the family who puts Jesus in the center, it's because they prioritize that vertical line. They prioritize that devotion first. That's what it means to hate your father and your mother. Here's number two. You got to surrender to the father. Surrender to the father. There are probably some of you who have a cross around your neck right now, and you wear it to state your faith, or you wear it as decoration or jewelry, whatever. You take that same image of the cross back in time 2,000 years to Jerusalem, and that image around your neck would provoke feelings of hate and disgust and terror, because crucifixion was a brutal way to die. I don't know if you know this or not. But in the first century, Jesus was one of probably, it's estimated, 20,000 prisoners a year who were crucified by the Roman government. Crucifixion was a horrible, horrible way to die. You see, crucifixion was symbolic in the sentence of death. Now, follow me here. When someone was crucified, they'd spend a long time in prison, then they'd strap the cross member of the cross to their back, and they'd make them carry that instrument of torture to their own execution. In doing so, they were saying, I am wrong, Rome is right. I am inferior, Rome is superior. Now, follow me, picture. You've got a frail, gaunt individual because they've been malnourished now in prison for who knows how long. They've been beaten or scourged like Jesus was before their crucifixion, and they're staggering their way through the city, and the image was meant to provoke fear and respect in the eyes of all who saw it. Rome is king. Rome is the authority. Rome is so powerful that this guy is willing to carry his own instrument of execution to his own death. Think about it. That's the beauty of being crucified with Christ. Paul said, I am crucified with Christ, and yet I'm alive. But it's not really me who's alive. It's Christ living in me. How can he make a statement like that? Because before Jesus Christ, I'm pale, I'm gaunt, I'm malnourished. I've been surviving on greed and sex and materialism. I've been surviving on addiction. I've been holding on to things that shouldn't mean what they mean to me. And I've staggered into my own execution. In addition, I finally realized, surrender to God, that's my only hope. That's my only hope. I'm malnourished. I've been beaten up by the world. I've been humiliated, shamed. Uh, I failed. The world has beaten me up. And so I'm carrying my cross. What did Jesus say? Jesus said, Take my yoke or my cross upon you because my yoke is easy and my burden is light compared to the other way around. That's the picture of crucifixion. That's what Jesus is saying. Unless you're willing to make God the authority for you to surrender, you can't be my disciple because that's what it takes. And here's number three, and I'll quit. You got to embrace unconditional Christ following. That's what verse 33 means. When Jesus said, you can't be my disciple if you're not willing to give up everything, I, like you, probably think, that's impossible. Nobody's given up everything. You haven't given up everything, Mike. 
All these people in this room, this comfortable air-conditioned auditorium, they haven't given up everything. What in the world is he talking about? The requirement seems unreasonable. Look, you need to know how possible this really is. Do you know why it's so possible? Because God doesn't ask you to give it up all at once. It's not like Friday I've got everything, Sunday I go to church, hear this message, and by Monday I have nothing. I'm destitute. That's not the way it works. No. It's one decision at a time. It's one priority at a time. God has this incredible way of bringing something up in front of your face and saying, do you love me more than you love this? And if you are a disciple, you'll say, gulp. This is a tough one, but yes, that's my intention. That's my motivation. That's how I've set up my life is to love you more than I love this. And then a little later on, he'll bring something up right in front of your face and he'll say, do you love me more than you love this? And you've got to think, yes, I know I should. I got to be honest, that's tough. You see, that's what full surrender is. When you embrace authentic faith in Jesus Christ, it doesn't mean you're not going to struggle with sin any longer. It's not going to mean you're sinless at some point. Hear me, hear me. I want to be clear. What Jesus is saying is that you could struggle with materialism your entire faith life. You could struggle with alcoholism your entire faith life. You could struggle with impure thoughts your entire faith life and still be a disciple. Because it's not your performance that gains access to the Father. It's your intention. It's your motivation. The individual who struggles, when he falls, he gets back up and he asks for forgiveness and he starts again. Why does he do that? Because his intention is to follow Jesus Christ. I'm going to do everything I can to follow him. And when he falls again, he gets back up and he says, I'm going to go again. That's what this means. And many of you practice it. So I end with a question. Is it your intention to follow Christ or what? Is it your intention to follow Christ? If not, then your commitment is conditional. We may call you a Christian, but that's about it. But if it is, hold on to your hat because God's going to use you. I'm going to be very, very direct and straightforward as I close. We cannot claim to be a disciple as Jesus defined, drawing the vertical line first, being willing to surrender to the Father, He's in charge, and being willing to give it up to follow Him. We cannot call ourselves a disciple if we refuse to deal with obvious sin in our lives. We just can't do it. We cannot call ourselves a disciple and refuse to respond to the scriptures that we examine every week. We come to church, we sit down, I lay it out there, I explain it the best I can, and we walk out and never give it another thought. Don't call yourself a disciple because you're not. And we cannot call ourselves a disciple if we simply attempt to fit in our faith walk whenever it's convenient for us to do so. That kind of Christianity has nothing to do with this kind of discipleship. So why not draw that line today? Why not draw that line today? Why not make this the day that you look back on and say there was a spiritual marker? Bam, bam, bam. I finally understand. I embraced. Because when your day is done, when they lower your body in the ground, and someone asks one of your children to speak, and they say things like, Daddy would have done anything for our family. Isn't that what you want them to say? Daddy would have given up everything for us kids. 
Daddy loved us more than anyone. Isn't that what you want them to say? Listen, that's what you want God to say. Draw the vertical line first. Don't be afraid to surrender and bow to the will of the Father. And don't hold on to these temporary possessions so tightly that you're unwilling to let them go for the good of your king. That's what it means to be a disciple. I'd love to have that conversation with you if you're curious. So use a communication card. Make sure I get your phone number, and we'll talk about it. Father, let's leave here this day with a clear understanding of what it truly means to follow your son. Father, we want to be authentic in our faith. We want to be real. We're going to stumble around. We're going to make a mess of things sometimes. But Father, it is your grace and mercy that picks us up, gets us going again. Make this church in its community real and authentic, I pray, in the name of Christ, our King, our Boss, our Lord. Amen. God bless you, Grace Community Church. I hope you make it a fantastic week. I mean that. I will see you next time.